played guitar Jamming good with weed and giving In the spiders from Mars He played it left hand And made it too far Became the special man Ziggy really sad, screwed up eyes and screwed down head dude, like some cat from Japan, he could lick them by smiling, he could leave them to hang, came on so loaded, well hung in snow white tan. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you almost as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to TMR number 131, Intelligent Design, What is Science Permitted to Think? Now I'll get onto that in just a few moments from now, but I have one or two things that I want to say before we get going with that. The first is that I'm very conscious, as no doubt you can tell from the music we've just been listening to, that this podcast is coming out the very week in which we heard of the death of David Cameron. Right now, 8.30, here's the latest. From Global's Newsroom, I'm Fiona Winchester. David Cameron has died, David Bowie has died after a secret 18-month battle with cancer. He was 69. Their first minister is among them. Oh, well, never mind. And of course, the opening music I played a moment ago was a parody of Bowie performed by the inimitable performance artist, singer and political activist J.J. Jones, who was on this podcast back in its very early days, TMR number six, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, of course, it was, needless to say, an affectionate parody, something of a performance art ironic homage, I guess, um, because J.J. Jones, uh, as he said in the interview, was really quite influenced by Bowie. But I have to say that I haven't quite been able to join in with the hero-worshipping aspect of what's been going on this week. I mean, certainly there's there's a lot about David Bowie's early work that I do admire and enjoy listening to. I mean, I, I generally have a high regard for artistic material that pushes the boundaries and explores content and structure and performance in unusual ways, so long as it's, you know, that it has charm and it's uh, genuinely interesting. And, you know, it has to be said he had an odd kind of charm and he was genuinely interesting and, uh, of course, highly influential. However, just from a purely personal perspective, I'm a little miffed by the media in that just about five days earlier, the French composer Pierre Boulez died and there was far less attention paid to that. Granted, he did die at the grand old age of 90, so the story didn't quite have the edge of sadness in comparison with the death at 69. But from my perspective, Pierre Boulez was an absolute giant of the musical world. Perhaps not quite as well known as his counterpart in Germany, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, but then, you know, what's best? 
being highly famous for spending most of your career writing pretentious drivel, or slightly less famous in writing visionary music that will prominently remain in the international concert repertoire. I would rather be a Boulez any day. Anyway, I digress. The main reason for doing this podcast today is essentially to put you all in the picture as to what's been going on and indeed is to some extent still going on here in the depths of the Lancashire countryside. Many of you I know have noticed that there wasn't a podcast last week and if I didn't do anything this week you might be tempted to think that uh, The Mind Renewed is gradually sloping off into the audio abyss of the interweb but that is not so. This is in fact just a hiccup. (laughs) Excuse me caused by flooding. On Boxing Day, we woke up quite late in the morning, as you do on Boxing Day, and uh, we were somewhat astonished to find water entering our lounge and our dining room. I came downstairs with my dressing gown on, expecting to make a a morning cup of tea, which (laughs) I hasten to add, I, I didn't get to drink until after midday, as it happens, and I saw what looked like a pond of rainwater gathering all around the outside of our house. And then I was thinking to myself, well, you know, what's going to happen inside the house? And within minutes, we witnessed this ingress under the skirting boards and dirty water started creeping across our lounge and dining room floors. And it eventually reached about three inches in depth. And uh, the worst part of it was that this was a solid oak floor that we saved up for and I had painstakingly laid this myself about four years ago and uh, <laughs> I, mean, I think I made a good job of it I know you're not supposed to say that but I actually think I did and I'm not you know not known for being fantastic at DIY but um, I made a good job of that and it was completely ruined plus the fact that we also had elderly relatives staying with us at the time my mum and my dad and my dad has mobility issues now so that certainly didn't make things easy at all On the other hand, we were fortunate in other ways because we weren't anywhere near so badly affected as many other people. When it happened, of course, I saw it starting, so we were able to get our Wellington boots on and and move furniture out of those rooms before much damage was done. And as it happens, the back of our house is slightly higher than the front, so we were able to shift things to higher ground, so to speak, and we saved quite a lot that way. So essentially, it was only the floor, the walls and the doors that got damaged. But of course, I was wondering if the water level was going to continue rising, in which case we would have had to retreat upstairs. But thankfully, that didn't happen. Um, Some local farmers came to our aid and they placed bales of hay in a, a long line along the road right next to our property. And that directed the water away from us. And a next door neighbor who amazingly, as it happens, works in the water industry, knew to dig some channels into the roadside. So we were spared the worst that might have happened. We were very thankful for all that help. And apparently what happened was that with that large quantity of rain in such a short period of time, the culvert further up the road that normally directs water from the surrounding fields into the draining ditch by the side of our road, well, that culvert was blocked. So the water naturally used the road as a drainage channel. And then because our house dates back to something like 1850, and the road has been built up and up gradually over the last 160 years or so, we're left at a lower level than the road. Say no more. (laughs) Um, It was an unusual set of circumstances, and uh, this is actually not known as a flooding area, but that's just the way things conspired on that particular day. 
And uh, I've put a photograph of this up on the schedule page if you fancy having a look at my wonderful oak floor being completely wrecked. I'm not at all happy about that. Um, some, of course, have been suggesting this is all due to global warming. And the chap from the insurance company assured me, yes, this is due to global warming. I'm not categorically saying that it isn't due to that, but um, I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to mean. I mean, if, according to the most reliable satellite measurements, global warming has not been happening for the last 19 years, plus the fact that there's been this most active El Nino since 1997, and I, I don't know how that relates or whether that relates to the global warming that apparently hasn't been happening. I, I don't know. Uh, plus the fact that apparently the government hasn't been looking after the waterways in comparison with previous years, uh, thanks to an EU directive called the European Water Framework Directive. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but um, you know, maybe some of you can tell me how something that's not been happening for the last 19 years can still have an effect. Excuse my cynicism. Um, anyway, as a consequence of all this, although we're not in a bad situation Things are not as easy as they usually are, and there's quite a lot to do in terms of, you know, sorting out insurance and drying things out and getting things dismantled and removed and repaired and replaced and all that. There's a lot going on, although we are coping really very well. But it has affected the podcast. Unfortunately, I'm behind with arranging guests to come on the show and thinking through generally where the show is going, um, although I'm very much hoping to be getting back to some kind of reasonably regular schedule as of next week. All being well, I should be talking with Thomas Gurler about his book, America's Post-Christian Apocalypse, which is an excellent book. Um, I haven't actually quite finished it, so I can't say it's excellent all the way through, can I? If I haven't quite finished it, but so far it's excellent, and I'm quite sure the rest of it will be as well. And that will probably be for more than one interview, actually, because the book has so very much in it. Then the following week, we should be talking again with our good friend, Dr. Tim Ball, who is always fun and uh, fascinating to talk to. And after that, I'm really not sure. There are many things in the pipeline, but I'll not reveal those things now because uh, just in case they don't work out, you never know. And I'll keep you informed as we go forward. The schedule page, of course, is the best way to keep up with developments there. So for the rest of today's podcast, I've decided to do what I occasionally do, which is to have a guest feature. Regular listeners to TMR will know that I sometimes do this as to you know, prevent the show going to sleep, as I say. So I try to keep something interesting up my sleeve for occasions such as this. And today I'd like to share with you a lecture that I found very interesting indeed. I heard it quite a few years ago, actually, by the philosopher Dr. Del Ratch, who is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Calvin College, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And the lecture is called Intelligent Design, What is Science Permitted to Think? And that was delivered at the McLaurin Institute in December 2004. That's now called McLaurin CSF, mclaurincsf.org. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And that's a Christian study centre based at the University of Minnesota. And of course, they hold the copyright to the talk, all rights reserved. And naturally, it appears here with their kind permission. Anyway, it's a talk to do with intelligent design theory, which has interested me for a long time. And many of you will remember that we had an interview with the biochemist Michael Behe back in 2013 on this subject, who, of course, is a, a major voice in the ID movement. But Delratch has a slightly different take on this movement, as it's normally associated with the 
Discovery Institute in Seattle, um, which is very interesting. And you'll hear in what ways he has a different take as you listen to what he has to say. Now, I did actually contact Professor Ratch uh, a week ago or so and uh, ask him if he'd like to come on the show to talk about his perspective. But he said to me that his research has now moved into different areas. So he doesn't feel that he's at the cutting edge, as it were, with design theory these days. So that was disappointing. But what we are able to do is to hear this lecture, which I'd say I found very interesting indeed, mainly because he addresses a number of objections that are often lodged against intelligent design theory. And in particular, the main objection that the very idea of supernatural design with respect to nature is illegitimate within science. So obviously this is methodological naturalism, the idea that science can only deal with natural causes, it can have nothing to say, indeed it must not have anything to say about supernatural causation. Even if that exists, it must have nothing to say about it. And Del Ratch, somewhat cautiously, but definitely disagrees with that. In his view, at least in this lecture and in his excellent book, Nature, Design and Science, that I read a few years ago, he thinks that the concept of supernatural design can actually be part of science. And let me just quote from the back of his book here so that you get an idea of the kind of thing that's in store with this lecture. Quote, Although the scientific illegitimacy of supernatural design is typically asserted with enormous confidence and vigour, there has been surprisingly little actual work on such key foundational issues as even what design is and on specific criteria for assessing its legitimacy or lack as a scientific concept. However, intelligent supernatural design is again surfacing in discussions both of anthropic principles and of certain types of biological complexity. This book develops a definition of design, explicates the more specific concept of supernatural design, defends a general criterion for scientific legitimacy, and argues that in some cases the concept of intelligent supernatural design can meet the relevant requirements for scientific legitimacy. End quote. So that's the back of the book. Obviously, the the lecture is not identical to that, but it's related to it. It's fascinating stuff. I will say, you know, whether you agree or not, I can guarantee it will get you thinking, which I think is always helpful for us to be invited to question some of our assumptions. So I shall say no more for now, except to say that Del Ratch seemed to have a nasty cough at the time. So I have thought about your ears. Don't worry. I have thought about your ears and I have removed the coughs to make it more comfortable to listen to. You see, I do care about you. And uh, I leave you now with the somewhat subversive thoughts of Dr. Del Ratch. Thank you. It's uh, always a bit risky to predict when a philosopher is going to quit talking. Uh, You said 45 minutes. Well, I'll take a shot at it. Uh, I'm going to be talking tonight about some issues that have to do, on the one hand, with the natural sciences, and on the other hand, with uh, the concept of design or intelligent design, or in some cases, even supernatural intelligent design. Now, if you go back to the 16th through about the middle of the 19th century, you had come across the view that there were some things in nature, some empirically observable things, that could be best explained, or perhaps even only explained, in terms of those things being deliberately, intelligently uh, designed. And virtually without exception, all the major scientific figures of that uh, long period held this kind of view. People like uh, Kepler and Newton, Herschel, Hewell, Maxwell, Faraday, uh, you name it, the major major scientific figures uh, uh, held this kind of design view. In fact, in the early... um, uh, 1800s, there was a series of books published in England. There were eight of them called the Bridgewater Treatises. And each one was uh, written by uh, a or sometimes the top practitioner in a scientific discipline or subdiscipline. And each one of them laid out 
the discoveries, the empirical discoveries in that particular area, which were seen as constituting evidence that there was genuine design in nature. But uh, design thinking in this broadly scientific kind of context subsequently uh, fell onto hard times for uh, rather complicated reasons. But in recent decades, there's been something of a resurgence of design thinking. Uh, this began in the 1970s in cosmology with what have come to be known as fine-tuning arguments that some of you might have heard about. And then in the 1990s, uh, design talk, at least, started seeping into some small corners of uh, biology. There were some biologists and biochemists who, like their earlier predecessors, thought that there were some empirically determinable things in nature that could only be adequately understood, only adequately explained, uh, by postulating those things as being deliberately intelligently designed. Now, that gave rise to what has come to be known as the intelligent design movement, and it's a fairly widely varied movement, but uh, I take it to cluster around uh, a number of basic claims, a number of basic principles, uh, in particular these. First, that there is, or at least can be, evidence of deliberate intelligent design in nature. Second, that such design can, at least in principle, be empirically identified and investigated. Third, that such investigation is, at least in principle, scientifically legitimate. And fourth, that such investigation should be given a fair scientific hearing. Now, there are some, uh, indeed many, design advocates, but not all uh, members of the intelligent design movement who believe also that Darwinian uh, evolution is false. Now, this kind of talk about design in nature and design theories in science, that has elicited an absolute firestorm of opposition and criticism, and there's been a tremendous amount of emotionalism on both sides of, of the debate. That is perhaps nowhere more vociferously expressed than in the work of Richard Dawkins, who's uh, a British biologist and popularizer. Uh, Dawkins, uh, not too long ago at a talk that he gave, said that to try to explain complexity that we see in nature by reference to an even more complex designer of nature was, in his exact words, were cowardly and dishonest. So Dawkins was saying that if you talk about design theories, if you talk about nature being designed, that's not only a scientific failing, that's a moral failing. You are wicked if you talk like that. Now, what exactly is the fight about? What has people like Dawkins so enraged? Well, some of the opposition to design theories is fueled by philosophical and, in some cases, even anti-religious biases. This is certainly true in the case of uh, Dawkins, uh, Francis Crick, Peter Atkins, Daniel Dennett, uh, E.O. Wilson, a number of people like that. But emotion aside, there really are two significant uh, issues. And the first of the two issues has to do with philosophy of science. Now, philosophy of science is my own discipline. And that's the discipline that deals with questions of what science can and cannot do, what kind of presuppositions science must uh, make use of in order to function, what kinds of systems of logic it employs in its various procedures and so forth. And the philosophy of science issue is this. Is it, even in principle, legitimate to appeal to the concept of, of intelligent design within the context of the natural sciences? Can you do that? Can you talk about design theories while you're doing chemistry, physics, and biology and still be claiming to do real science? Now, that's the first issue. The second issue is an empirical issue. Suppose that we were to agree, at least uh, just for the moment, 
that the answer to this first question is yes, that at least in principle, it was legitimate to talk about nature being designed within the context of the natural sciences. That would still leave the empirical question of whether or not the empirical data we have at present actually support design theories. So even if it was okay to talk about design, to postulate design theories in science, even if that was okay, is there any empirical reason to do so? Do the empirical data we have actually support uh, design theories and the kinds of things that the contemporary intelligent design movement says? Now, what I want to do with you uh, here this evening is to explore some basic issues, primarily in the first category here, uh, to give you some questions to uh, think about, uh, some categories for thinking about those questions, and to maybe point out some of the implications of various positions that one can take here. Now, before we begin, uh, a disclaimer, a sort of truth in advertising, my own position on this. My own perspective is that the answer to the first question is yes, that at least in principle, it can be legitimate. My answer to the second question is that the intelligent design movement has not yet made their empirical case. Uh, they think they have. Uh, I'm not quite so sure. So I think that it's possible in principle to make a design case within science, but I don't think that the intelligent design movement has quite yet done it. Now, critics of intelligent design want to say that the answer to both of these questions is a resounding no, and I want to disagree with them on the first question here for most of our time uh, this evening. Now, I want to begin with just some basic principles for thinking about design and science, not necessarily supernatural design, but just the generic concept of design, the generic concept of intelligent design uh, in science. First basic principle. In some contexts, design is a scientifically legitimate, even essential, descriptive and explanatory concept. Uh, suppose that you're an anthropologist. You're digging down through some soil horizon. You come across, uh, you know, a stone spear point. Well, it would obviously be legitimate for you to describe and to explain key features of that spear point by reference to the intentions, the purpose, the design of whoever it was that made that spear point. So obviously no difficulty there. Or suppose uh, you're working on the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And suppose you're looking for artificial signals uh, from maybe alien civilizations, the way Jodie Foster was doing in the movie Contact. Well, obviously, there's nothing scientifically pernicious about that. And in fact, if you did come across something like Jodie Foster did, picking up, uh, as I recall, it was a series of prime numbers in binary, uh, if you did pick something up like that, it would certainly be legitimate for you to notice that pattern. Uh, it would be legitimate for you to think that there was some intent behind that. And in fact, it would be downright inept of you to, uh, as a scientist, miss that pattern. So the basic idea here is that in the broad scientific context, there's nothing wrong with just the bare concept of design itself. Okay, the second basic principle is that design is often recognizable and identifiable by way of empirically definable, observable properties. Uh, suppose that you're on the first uh, landing team that's going to set down on Mars, and your lander sets down, uh, you open the hatch, crawl out, and there in front of you on the Martian sands is this. Well, you would immediately recognize that incidentally the little bulldozer is a commercial uh, bulldozer, 
And that gives you some idea of the scale of the size of the big one. Uh, that's made by the Komatsu Corporation, and they refer to this big one as the Kahuna. But, you know, suppose you see that. Well, you would immediately tumble to the fact that that was designed, and it wouldn't be by some mystical intuition or some religious insight or some New Age vibe or something of that sort. There would be something in what you saw, something in what you observed, some empirical thing here that would tip you off to this thing being a product of design. Now, it turns out to be surprisingly difficult to say what that might be. And, uh, in fact, uh, a good chunk of uh, my most recent book is, is trying to say something about what that might be. But sometime if you've got uh, a few odd moments and uh, you would like to sort of feel like a philosopher, here's an experiment for you to try. Imagine that uh, NASA, again, is going to send somebody to uh, Mars, but you don't get to go this time. You're part of the ground crew. The people that run NASA want... Uh, anybody want, want their, their astronauts to be sure and bring back anything that might be an artifact that might be a product of design uh, to bring those things back for investigation. But they don't want uh, the astronauts just bringing back sort of random bags of debris. So you need some principles for distinguishing what might be designed by aliens or whoever and what probably isn't. You need some criteria for distinguishing those. Now, NASA, of course, being a government agency, everything has to have a manual, right, and preferably this thick if you can manage it. And you've been given the job of writing that manual to instruct the astronauts what to look for in separating potential alien artifacts that might be designed from just sort of random debris. That's an interesting experiment uh, to try, I sometimes uh, torture some of my philosophy of science students by giving them that assignment. But uh, you might want to try it sometime. I commend it to you. Okay, third basic principle. Design is frequently recognizable independent of knowledge of or ignorance of the identity, character, and intentions of the designer. You don't have to know who designed something or even what their purpose was in designing something in order to recognize that it is, in fact, a product of design. Uh, simple story. When I was uh, much younger, I was under an absolutely strict prohibition never to go into my older sister's bedroom and snoop through her mysterious girl stuff. So naturally, I did that every possible chance I got. And there was one thing that used to just fascinate me. It was this little thing. You, it had a place where you could stick in one finger and one thumb, and you could squeeze them together, and then there was this thing that rode up and down as you did that between these two little posts, and then there was a thing at the top that this thing that went up and down slotted into. It was just beautiful. It was sweet. I loved that thing. It was clear that that was designed. I hadn't a clue what the purpose of the designer was, what it was for, who had designed it, or anything of the sort, but none of that kept me from recognizing it as a product of design. Uh, any of you guys with a guilty conscience recognize what it was from that description? It was an eyelash curler. Now, how do you come to know that? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and again, um, you know, suppose you land on Mars and you see this bulldozer that we were looking at a moment ago. You might have no idea who or what had produced that thing, what their purpose was or anything of the sort, but that wouldn't prevent you from telling that that thing was designed. 
And it would hardly do for one of your crewmates to say, well, we can't tell that this is designed until we know who the designer was and what their purpose was. Well, obviously not. Without knowing any of that, you can often tell, often recognize design. Now, a fourth principle. Design is, at least frequently, recognizable independent of knowledge of or ignorance of the means of production in question. Uh, suppose you land on Mars again. And instead of a bulldozer, this time you crawl out, and there in front of you is a perfectly cubical chunk of isotopically pure cast titanium 10 meters on a side. And suppose you haven't any idea how somebody could produce something like that. In fact, maybe up until the moment you saw it, you had some really neat uh, metallurgical theory that said that you couldn't cast titanium uh, of that purity in that way. But even though you don't know what the means of production was, you can still tell quite readily that that is a product of design. So here again, you can recognize it independent of whether or not you know anything about not only who designed it, why they designed it, but how they did it. Now, this fourth principle is connected to another one which is importantly but subtly different, and that goes this way. Whether or not something is designed and the means by which it was produced are independent issues. Now, it's whether or not it is designed, not whether or not we can recognize that it's designed, and the means by which it was produced, not whether or not we know what those means are. But whether or not something is designed, that's one question. How it was produced, that's a different and an independent question. Uh, intelligent agents like human beings. We can harness, we can appropriate, we can use all kinds of processes and employ those to indirectly produce things that we want uh, produced. And we use all sorts of means in our production mechanisms. And so in a lot of cases, we can't say, well, this thing can't be designed because it was produced by this means, because whether or not it was designed and how it was produced, those are independent questions. In fact, we often even use biological means anymore nowadays to um, produce things like uh, designer medications, hormones, and things like that. So we can even harness, we can even appropriate biological processes to produce things that we have designed and want produced. Now, that gives rise to a corollary here. The fact that something is produced biologically need not prevent it from being deliberately designed, or prevent us from recognizing it as designed by ordinary means of design recognition. So the fact that we see something, for instance, as an outcome of biological processes doesn't close the question as to whether or not the thing was designed. Is it produced biologically? That's one question. Is it designed? That's a different question. Um, here's uh, maybe just an illustration of uh, how that might work, uh, maybe a far-fetched illustration, but uh, suppose that right before the last election, every person who was working at the Democratic National uh, Committee headquarters suddenly came down with an acute attack of gallstones, and they're all rushed to the hospital, rushed into the emergency room, rushed into surgery. Surgery is performed on all of them. The gallstones are removed, and everybody's going to be okay. But one of the surgeons notices something a little bit peculiar about uh, some of the gallstones, and so takes one of them, puts it under a microscope, and uh, tries to 
bring it into focus to see what it was that looked a little bit unusual. And, you know, these things are hard to get into focus, but, uh, you know, the surgeon sees something like this. Well, now, it would hardly do for somebody to say, well, look, that was produced by a biological process in these people's bodies. Well, that might be true, but it's pretty clear that that was done deliberately and intentionally, that that was designed. And, in fact, we could probably make a pretty fair stab at identifying who the designers were. So, again, the idea is you can't just automatically say this is produced by biological means, Therefore, it can't be designed. Those are two different questions. Now, there are some people, primarily people in the intelligent design movement, who say that we're already in a situation of this sort. Uh, they will often point to things like this. Uh, this is uh, a rotary motor. This is uh, something that you'll find on uh, E. coli flagella. You've got uh, millions of these things running around in your own bodies, and they're all through the environment. And this is, in fact, a genuine electric rotary motor. It uh, runs uh, on a potential gradient uh, involving sodium ions. It's got uh, rotors, rings, stators, bushings, drive shafts, the whole nine yards for an electric rotary motor. Uh, the specs on this thing are fairly impressive. They have been clocked in the vicinity of 17,000 RPM, and they can be moving in one direction, stop and reverse direction in a quarter of a turn. Now, that's fairly impressive motor specifications. And if you had gotten off your spaceship on Mars and crawled out onto the Martian sands and seen an electric rotary motor with that kind of capability, you would have immediately suspected design. Well, the intelligent design movement wants to know, why should it make any difference that this kind of thing, that this motor is actually in you? that it's produced biologically. Surely the location of something has no bearing on whether or not it's designed. And again, the means of production doesn't close the case of design. So this is the sort of thing the intelligent design movement has been pointing to and saying, look, the sensible thing when you see an electric rotary motor is to think there's a designer behind this. This didn't just happen by accident. And it doesn't matter how it was produced, whether biologically or by some other means. And it doesn't matter who the designer was. We've got to be talking about a designer here, or at least that's the sensible thing to say. Now, that's the kind of thing that the intelligent design movement has been pushing uh, in recent years. Now, again, this has given rise to an absolute firestorm of uh, objections. So remember Dawkins' earlier quote about uh, intelligent design theorists being cowardly and dishonest for saying that this looks awfully designed. And there have arisen a number of fairly standard objections to uh, design theories by opponents. Um, I want to talk just about uh, three uh, classes of those objections fairly briefly and then end with uh, a suggestion in a slightly different direction. The three common objections that I want to talk about uh, are first, that design theories are scientifically illegitimate. Uh, second, that they are scientifically empty, that design theories in science don't have any empirical bite. You can't pin them down empirically. They don't make any predictions. They're not falsifiable and so forth. So they're, first, they're just scientifically illegitimate. They're against the rules. Second, that they don't cut any empirical ice anyway. And then third, 
that in fact they are detrimental to science and they pose a significant risk to science. Uh, those aren't all the objections uh, there are, but uh, you don't want to stay long enough to hear about all of them, so I'll just uh, stick with those three. Uh, first, just briefly, the objection that design theories in the natural sciences are scientifically illegitimate. Why might one think that? Well, one reason one often comes across is that design theories are wrongly motivated. And you'll often hear people say things like intelligent design uh, theories are really motivated by religion or they're motivated by religious belief or they're really just a sneaky form of creationism or something of that sort. Um, that, as a matter of fact, is not entirely true. It's certainly, it's certainly true in some cases. But there are uh, a number of people involved in the design movement that aren't motivated by religious belief, that aren't motivated by, uh, say, an opposition to evolutionary theory or something of that sort. But in any case, even if it was completely true, it's not clear what relevance that has. It's been uh, a commonplace in science uh, for a couple centuries that one's motivation for postulating a theory has nothing to do with whether or not that theory is legitimate or not. The question is whether or not that theory on its own can stand up to scientific scrutiny. Uh, just a recent example of this uh, sort of thing. Uh, most of you have heard of the biologist Francis Crick. Uh, has a Nobel or had, got a Nobel Prize for uh, co-discovery with James Watson of the double helical structure of DNA. Uh, Crick just recently died, but uh, not too long before his death, in an interview, he said that the reason he had gone into science was because of a distaste for religion that he did not like religion. He wanted the opportunity to do as much damage to religion as he could, and it looked to him like science was the place to do that. And he said once he uh, made the decision to go into science, he looked around to see where in science one could inflict the most damage. He decided that there were two areas. One was the area of consciousness, because if he could uh, give an account of that in purely physical naturalistic terms. He thought that that would destroy the typical religious belief in a soul. Uh, the other was in the area of life and its origin. He thought if he could give a naturalistic account of that, that that would do in the idea that a creator was required for the existence of life. He chose the latter of those two options that he was considering and eventually ended up with the double helical uh, theory and getting a Nobel Prize. Now, his motivation for that whole chain of decisions was hostility to religion. But that obviously has nothing to do with whether or not the theory that he came up with, this double helical structure, was a legitimate scientific theory, whether it was true or anything of the sort. Those are just two separate questions. So even if it turned out that intelligent design advocates were motivated by religious considerations and so forth, that might be interesting, but it really wouldn't have anything to do with whether or not their theories were legitimate. Um, second on this illegitimacy theme, um, another objection goes like this. That design in nature would require a supernatural designer. If it's nature itself that's designed, then obviously the designer must be beyond nature, must be supernatural. And the objection continues, uh, talk about the supernatural is forbidden in science. It violates the very uh, rules, the very methods of science itself. Now, why should one think that it violates the rules and the methods of science itself? Um, one frequent answer that's given is that 
uh, the very definition of what science is rules that out. Now, that claim has some plausibility, but there are at least a couple things that one should keep in the back of uh, one's mind in thinking about this definitional attack on the legitimacy of design theories. The first thing is this. Nobody at this point has a completely defensible definition of what science is. And that's been the situation for about the last half century, at least, that that's been recognized. Uh, there have been a lot of definitions that have looked pretty good at the outset, but all of them, without exception, up to the present day, have crumbled under scrutiny. In fact, there was one definition uh, that was proposed not too long ago that looked quite promising to quite a number of people until somebody pointed out that on that definition, it would turn out that organized crime was a science. So if you wanted to be a scientist, you could major in, you know, astronomy, physics, biology, chemistry, geology, organized crime. That didn't seem quite right. And although the, the difficulties with other definitions haven't been quite that spectacular, that has been the common fate. Second, even if we did think we had the right definition, the complete definition of science at this point, it should be recognized that such definitions have changed historically. I think you can make the case fairly compellingly that the definitions of science that scientists themselves have employed uh, changed at least four and possibly five times substantively in the last century. That's not to say that scientific theories changed, but if you had asked scientists, what are you doing when you are doing science, you would have gotten at least four and possibly five different answers at different periods in the last century. So even if we thought at this point that we finally had the right definition nailed down, there's no guarantee that it's going to stay nailed down. They have a history of uh, moving around a bit. But in any case, there's a deeper question here involving definition. And it's this. It's a question of precedence. Where do definitions come from? Well, we humans construct definitions. Definitions we don't find carved on some stratum 2,000 feet down. We don't find definitions in the bottom of test tubes with some precipitate. Authoritative dictionaries don't just fall out of the sky. So definitions turn out to be human constructions. And that raises this issue. What happens when our favorite definition comes into conflict with what nature seems to tell us. And as a matter of fact, that's happened repeatedly historically. Uh, to go back to 1687, Newton published his first major work, the Principia Mathematica. And the kind of science that Newton was proposing in the Principia violated the reigning definition of science in his day. And there were reputable scientists who rejected Newton, at least initially, because they said, this isn't science, it violates the definition. Um, come a bit closer to the present, uh, 1859, Darwin publishes The Origin of Species. The kind of science that the origin involved violated what was the common definition of science in Darwin's day. Darwin knew that. Darwin was aware of that fact. And Darwin recognized that what he was trying to do was not only to change people's minds about what theory to accept, but to change people's minds about how to think about what science was. And in fact, in his defense, while he was deliberately doing that, Darwin says, look, Newton did something like that, so so can I. So there have been numerous cases historically where definitions have apparently 
been violated by what nature looked like it was telling us. And in Darwin's case, too, just like in Newton's, there were reputable scientists that rejected his theory initially on grounds that it simply didn't fit the definition of what was proper science. Now, we've all heard that uh, the opposition to evolution was primarily religious. Uh, that turns out historically not quite to be the case. So in these two cases, uh, Newton and Darwin, they won. Uh, it looked like nature was telling us, at least most people would say, it looked like nature was telling us that they were right and that our previous definitions of what was legitimately science were wrong. Or maybe a better way to put it is that uh, in this kind of case, sometimes nature wins over our preferred favorite human definitions. And that raises a question, which I will just uh, leave for you to think about, and it's a question of precedence again. If, okay, notice the if, nature and the data seem to tell us something contrary to our definition and conception of science, which should take precedence, nature and the data, or our definitions and conceptions. Now, science is often informally defined as following the data wherever the data lead. Well, suppose that it were to turn out, I'm not saying it has or will, but suppose it were to turn out that the data seemed to lead to design. Would it make any difference that that violated our preferred current definitions of science? Okay, the second general category of objections is uh, recall that design theories don't really have any empirical traction. They don't cut any empirical ice. They have no empirical substance or content. You can't pin them down uh, empirically, the objection goes. They don't make predictions. They're not testable. They're not really properly scientifically falsifiable. Well, you have to be a little bit careful here because, in general, it's simply not true that design as such can't be empirically investigated. I mean, you know, again, uh, you land on Mars and see this uh, bulldozer sitting here. Uh, it will hardly do for somebody to say, well, it would really be interesting to investigate that, but that's clearly designed, um, and so there is no empirical way of investigating that. We've just got to give up and uh, start looking for mineral deposits or something of that sort. I mean, Obviously, the fact that it's designed doesn't at all mean that you can't empirically investigate that. Now, investigation of a machine or an artifact or something designed may require a different kind of investigation in some cases. It might require what is sometimes referred to as reverse engineering. But there have been some uh, fairly big-time scientists historically, uh, Kepler, for instance, who thought that all science was reverse engineering that what we were doing was trying to discover God's thoughts and wisdom built into the creation. So that we were dealing with a designed creation and we were trying to extract those thoughts. We were trying to reverse engineer the cosmos. That's what Kepler thought science was. Now, somebody might say, well, yeah, look, this kind of reverse engineering, it might work uh, you know, with alien designs or with human designs, but what about supernatural design? I mean, how do we get any insight into the design process, the design thought of an infinite supernatural being? The common claim here is that if we postulate the existence of God or a supernatural designer, then we have to admit that, well, God could have done things any way he wanted. He could have made things look any way he wanted, regardless of how he had actually done things. And so we couldn't anticipate, we couldn't tell, we couldn't understand, we couldn't predict 
couldn't explain what he had done. Uh, there's a bit of an irony here because that is exactly what the Pope said to Galileo, but uh, won't pursue that. But what exactly does the historical record here show? Well, the relationship of a theory to empirical data uh, turns out to be a fairly complicated matter, and it's different with different theories that function in different ways at different levels of the scientific conceptual structure. Uh, evolutionary theory itself is very modest, predictively, and it's fairly readily adjustable to what initially seemed like problematic data. Uh, it is, in uh, some definable respects, fairly hard to pin down empirically. But it does have significant unifying and explanatory power. So to say that it's modest predictively, that it uh, can adjust itself fairly well to what looks like contrary data, that's not to criticize the theory. That's just to say that the level of the scientific conceptual structure at which it operates allows it to do that and perhaps even requires it to do that. But, of course, it's possible that design theories might operate at that same level and that we would have to say the same thing for them. But there are at least a couple things worth noting in that connection. The first is it's just not historically true that design theories had no real scientific payoff. Uh, modern science, and I'll say a little bit more about this in a few minutes, uh, modern science arose uh, only once in the history of the planet, and that was out of the Western theistic intellectual context. And the fact that science did and could rise at that point is connected with the fact that people at that point were seeing nature as an artifact, as a creation, as something designed, and were looking for the wisdom built into that creation. So it may be that the very existence of science itself is historically a payoff of design thinking. So maybe we shouldn't just look for specific theories as payoff for design thinking. It may be that science itself and its very existence is a payoff of design thinking. But there are some uh, more specific historical payoffs as well, and let me just mention uh, a couple of them here uh, quickly. Uh, in physics, historically, Newton felt that he could postulate something like gravity, which looked awfully like what was then the forbidden idea in science of action at a distance. Newton thought he could play with the idea of gravity because he said, look, we're dealing with something that was designed by God. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. So God can bring it about that events that happen here have effects that happen here without any kind of contact in between. So it was Newton's idea of the cosmos as a creation of an omnipresent God that allowed him to even postulate the possibility of what ultimately became his gravitational theory. Um, in biology, you would expect biology with things that look so purposeful and look so designed, uh, organisms, the eye, and things of that sort. You would expect biology to be a likely area for design thinking, and historically it has been. Uh, the historian of science, uh, Timothy Lenoir, uh, in his book Strategy of Life, says teleological thinking has been steadfastly resisted by modern biology, and yet in nearly every area of research, biologists are hard-pressed to find language that does not impute purposiveness to living forms. And he goes on, in the early 19th, in early 19th century Germany, a very coherent body of theory based on a teleological, a design, a purpose approach, was worked out, and it did provide a constant, fertile source for the advance of biological science 
on a number of different research fronts. And even more telling, perhaps, in contemporary physics. Uh, some of you will have heard of the 20th century physicist uh, Max Planck, one of the uh, most important physicists of the 20th century. Uh, Planck, in one of his pieces, says, amid the more or less general laws which mark the achievement of physical science during the course of the last centuries, the principle of least action is perhaps that which may claim to come nearest to the ideal final aim of theoretical research. And then he says, speaking of this principle of least action, he says, what we must regard as the greatest wonder of all is the fact that the most adequate formulation of this law creates the impression in every unbiased mind that nature is ruled by a rational, purposive will. So according to Planck here, the best scientific conception we have is a design-flavored theory. And other physicists, Leonard Euler and so forth, uh, others like that, agreed with him here. Um, it's also worth noting, but I won't go into it, that hostility to design from an atheist standpoint has had a fairly ugly track record historically as well. Um, again, I won't go into them, but here are just a number of, of uh, examples for the speed readers of Marxist, Stalinist, Nazi, Maoist um, uh, scientific theories that they have rejected on the basis of uh, a broader atheistic worldview, which was uh, inhospitable to design. And in every case uh, on this list here, they've turned out to be wrong. And in fact, you wonder if biology had approached life as being fearfully and wonderfully made, as we're told in the book of Psalms, you wonder if the uh, now shrinking list of vestigial organs would have gotten as large as it once was, uh, over 120 entries. Uh, or you wonder if non-coding DNA would have so easily been termed junk DNA, which is becoming increasingly clear it isn't. Uh, in any case, it's not quite so clear that design is empirically empty, and it's especially unclear in some cases involving uh, cosmic fine-tuning and cosmology, but um, we don't have time to go into that. Okay, very quickly, the third of the three objections that I sketched out for you, that design theories in science would put science at risk, that if you allow scientists to talk about design in nature, you run the risk of destroying science. Why would anybody think that? Well, here's a quote from a recent book uh, by Robert Pinnock. Uh, Pinnock says, once such supernatural explanations are permitted, they could be used in chemistry and physics as easily as creationists have used them in biology and geology. Indeed, all empirical investigation beyond the purely descriptive could cease, for scientists would have a ready-made answer for everything. Now, here's, here's what Pinnock and others have had in mind here, that uh, suppose you allow scientists to say, well, this must have been designed or God did this or something of that sort. Then whenever a scientist comes up against a really difficult problem, there will be a temptation to say, yep, that must be one of those design cases. Leave the difficult question and go on to an easier question and consequently never figure out any uh, genuinely scientific explanation of that uh, difficult issue. And this kind of worry goes back a long ways. Francis Bacon in 1623, the handling of final causes mixed with the rest in physical inquiries hath intercepted the severe and diligent inquiry of all real and physical causes and given many occasion to stay upon these satisfactory and specious causes to the great arrest and prejudice of further inquiry. Take my word for it, that's what he means. And the same with uh, Robert Boyle, 
So there were some people who were deeply committed to the idea that reality was a creation, but who thought that there was some risk to allowing design talk into science. And the worry was that scientists would stop too soon if they had this easy out. Now, that's a sensible worry. But it's worth at least noting that design ideas don't always tempt one to stop too soon. Uh, every year, when uh, new model cars come out, new computer chip chips come out, uh, the competitors go out and buy that product and then meticulously tear it apart, try to reverse engineer it, try to see if there's a new solution to some common problem that all of them have or something of that sort. And they pay particular attention to things that are puzzling because they are assuming that those things must be designed. So far from stopping too soon, they give the most attention to the most puzzling, the most difficult things. In fact, um, I experienced an example of something like this uh, not too long ago. There's uh, uh, one of my colleagues who's an avid chess player, and he's very good. And we've played for a lot of years, and over those years, uh, he's probably beaten me on average nine out of ten games. And he's, he's the sort that, you know, you, th you say, well, I guess I'll move this piece over here. And he says, oh, right, so you're taking the same kind of route that Capablanca did in 1934 when he was doing this digression on a Rui Lopez. And you say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. Um, but he and I were playing uh, not too long ago, and we were playing with a clock. And I made a move, hit the button on my clock, and the instant I pushed that button, I saw why that move was an absolute disaster. I mean... The game was essentially over. And my friend immediately started to pounce on it, started to reach for the appropriate piece to just totally crush me into oblivion. And then his hand stopped in midair, and he looked at the board, and he looked at it some more. He took his hand back, looked at it some more. He stood up, looked at it from above, actually went over to one side of the board, tried to get a different perspective on it, and he was just baffled because he couldn't believe that I had made a move that was quite that abominable. <laughs> so he figured there's got to be some kind of design here that I'm not seeing. And he sat there puzzling over that move until the time on his clock ran out and I won. <laughs> I mean, it was one of my most satisfying chess triumphs ever. But there it was the idea that that move was designed that kept him not only from quitting too soon, but kept him from quitting soon enough. So you have to be a little bit careful you know, when you say that if we allow design ideas into science, that could kill science because scientists will quit too soon when they come to hard problems. Sometimes it's thinking that something is designed that keeps somebody going even longer than they otherwise would. Now, there are, again, indeed risks to allowing design talk into science. I don't think that's uh, a silly, a frivolous objection. It is a, a sensible worry. But there are risks on the other side as well. Suppose, again, that uh, you're about ready to blast off to Mars, and right before you get ready to leave, uh, the head of NASA calls you in and says, all right, look, we're going to have some rules here. says, we don't want to be spending billions of dollars in order to provide grist for uh, UFO loonies uh, to provide aid and comfort to uh, National Enquirer stories, and we certainly don't want to start any kind of Roswell panic. So when you get to Mars, says the head of NASA, I don't care what you see, 
what you think, what you discover, you may not, in any of your messages back to us, you may not refer to aliens, suggest their existence, or anything of the sort. Any reference to aliens is out. Okay. Well, that makes some sense, and you, you see why. You need that restriction, so uh, you crawl in spaceship, blast off in due time, you land, crawl out, and there again, you know, this is the first thing you see. Well, now the question that immediately arises is where'd that thing come from? I mean, you're the first humans there, right? So where'd this thing come from? Well, you have this restriction on your theorizing, on your reports back. You can't mention aliens. So what you have to do, since this is manifestly a product of aliens, what you have to do is either ignore the question, where did that come from, which may mean ignoring the most exciting thing of the whole voyage, or you have to come up with some theory about where this thing came from that doesn't mention aliens. You know, like there's some really weird Martian chemical processes that every once in a while just produce Martian bulldozers. So if you are operating within the confines of a restriction that you mant, uh, mention aliens, then if it turns out that reality falls outside of those imposed borders, that imposed restriction, your science is either, your science of Mars is either going to be woefully incomplete, ignoring the question, or it's going to be wildly skewed, some theory of how chemical processes did that. Now, many people, of course, want to put a prohibition on mentioning supernatural design in science. And again, I think there are some risks to allowing that into science, but you do have potentially the same problem uh, we've got here. Suppose, just for the moment, I'm not saying it did, but suppose, just for the moment, that life originated on Earth by supernatural activity. Suppose that was the case. Well, suppose you're operating within a restriction on your science that you can't mention any kind of supernatural activity in your science. The question arises, how did life begin? Well, you've got two choices. You can either just remain silent on that question, in which case your science is incomplete, or you can come up with some natural theory of how life began, and if life didn't begin naturally, that natural theory is going to be just mistaken. So here again, you have the same choice of incompleteness or skewed science. So again, if, if reality falls outside of our humanly stipulated restrictions, we may be in for difficulties. Now, there are some other philosophical objections to uh, design theories, but uh, I don't think many of them stand up to scrutiny either. But despite that fact, I think it's possible that the current intelligent design movement uh, may be on the wrong track. And let me just very briefly say why. It's, it's not that I think that nature isn't designed. I think, it, I think it is. It's not that I think that we can't recognize design in nature. I think, as a matter of fact, we can. But I think that the way that science gets at things may not be the way that design ideas typically arise, and consequently trying to turn them into science may lead to some difficulties. Now, let me just uh, quickly sketch out why I say that. Scientific theorizing typically involves substantial creativity, and the theories that result are typically initially surprising. That's just the way it's gone historically. Design intuitions, on the other hand, don't seem to emerge from creative grappling with data, but they seem to be almost intertwined with our natural ways of thinking 
and in many contexts they seem almost inevitable. I mean, finding yourself thinking that things in nature look awfully designed and may be designed, that's an enormously common experience. Darwin himself reported it up to the last year of his life. The contemporary biologist Francis Crick, uh, that I mentioned a bit ago, he thought that uh, there was such a strong tendency to see design in things that he said that biologists had to constantly be on their guard against falling into what he thought was the error of thinking that things were designed. So it's not something that emerges from struggle with data. It's something that is so much a part of our thinking that Crick says you have to be warned and constantly on your guard so you don't do it. Well, that suggests that we're dealing with a different category of belief formation when we're talking about design than when we're talking about usual scientific theorizing. So what is the source of design intuitions and design thinking? Well, think about the idea that there is a physical world outside of our minds, you know, things like this. That idea that there is a physical world outside of our minds, that's not a result of science. You didn't have to take a science class before you knew that. Uh, it's far too deep for that. It's part of what science itself depends on. It's part of the very fabric of the structure of science rather than a scientific result. But why do we have that belief? Why do we believe that there is a physical world outside of our own minds? Well, the 18th century Scottish uh, common sense philosopher Thomas Reed and some of his contemporary followers uh, argue that we are simply so constructed, we are put together in such a way that in uh, a lot of normally experienced circumstances, we simply discover that we believe that there are physical things outside of our minds, that we simply believe, not that we choose, not that we argue, we simply discover that we have these beliefs that we have these beliefs that the beings around us have minds or conscious, can be hurt, and things of that sort. And there have been some people who historically have held uh, that that's the way we come to see design in nature around us as well. Not that we argue to that conclusion, not that we come to that conclusion wrestling with data, but we are just built in such a way that we see that design. That's just part of the way our cognition operates. Now, if something like that were the operative process of design beliefs, then trying to turn design beliefs into a completely different kind of thing, into something like science, into something based on scientific inferences and arguments and evidences and so forth, that might be to completely misconstruct the actual source of the design beliefs that many, if not most of us, have. And it might be as odd trying to turn design beliefs into a science as it would be trying to turn physical objects outside of our mind beliefs into a science. Now, one last thing. Science arose only once. Uh, it arose in the Western theistic intellectual context. And most historians argue that that was not a coincidence. And the sort of orderly, coherent, intelligible world that in very general terms design theories see, a creation-like world, that turns out to be, as far as we know, the only sort of world in which science as we know it is even possible. So the very doing of science itself may be to implicitly assume that nature is designed, just as the very doing of science itself is to implicitly assume that nature exists.
that is why I think Paul Davies, uh, an Australian physicist who is not a believer by any stretch, uh, recently said, science began as an outgrowth of theology, and all scientists, whether atheists or theists, accept an essentially theological worldview. Now, this brings me to my conclusion, so take heart. So, although I don't think that most of the philosophical criticisms of intelligent design theories are compelling, it may very well be, again, that trying to make design intuitions into a science may prove problematic. That's not to say, however, that design intuitions don't fit exceedingly well with science, that design ideas can't be scientifically useful ways of thinking about nature. It's not to say that the beauty of the heavens do not declare design to us, or that our experiences, even in science, cannot trigger design convictions in us. The psalmist in the Bible tells us that the skies pour forth speech, and that we humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. Science has, if anything, only reinforced those perceptions with its continual uncovering of the fine-tuning of the cosmos, the skies, and the intricacies of biological life, including us. But whether we classify it as science or not, whether we can construct arguments and inferences or not, whether we think it's experimentally verifiable or not, whether it's empirically measurable or not, seeing a deliberate hand deep behind the dazzling, beautiful intricacies of nature is nothing that requires apology. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you found that lecture as interesting as I did. As I say, whether we agree or not, I think it's always good to have our definitions and assumptions challenged because it can help us to open our minds to thinking in new ways, which can sometimes be a good thing. Though not always, of course, sometimes the old ways are best. I think it's a case-by-case basis, is it not, with these things. One thing I would say is that although I find Del Ratch's more philosophical approach to the intuition of design very interesting and indeed pretty persuasive, actually, I would say that maybe we can have both. Maybe supernatural design could be argued in both ways, empirically, from such notions as irreducible complexity, as uh, Michael Behe explained when he was when he did that interview with us, and philosophically in in the ways that Del Ratch suggests. Maybe we can have both. Maybe they complement each other. Um, and I don't think that Del Ratch would necessarily disagree with that. As he said in the lecture at the time, in 2004, he was not yet persuaded that the case had been made empirically within the intelligent design movement. But I suspect that he would be open to it if indeed that case were as watertight as he would like. So, you know, just a thought there. Maybe we could argue it both ways. Anyway, as I said, I hope to be speaking with Thomas Gurler about his book, America's Post-Christian Apocalypse, next week, and then uh, settling into a regular, hopefully weekly or almost weekly podcast thereafter flood damage permitting we shall see so i shall say goodbye for now and uh, thank you for listening you have been listening to me julian charles of the mindrenew.com and i very 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 much hope to be able to speak to you again in the very near future ziggy played for time driving us that we It was just crass He was an ass With God-given ass 
Dankeschön.